Welcome to Lou Palumbo's Between the Lines. Problem solving for our future. Lou. Common sense, logic, and reasoning. Lou. The man that can't stand hate and animus. Lou. Stimulating the thought process of America. Lou. Where being right is not political, it's factual. Lou. Providing real solutions in real time. And now, here's your host, Lou Palumbo. Um, if you're wondering what the motivating factor is in undertaking a project of this, of this type, it's kind of simply driven. It has to do with the future of this country and ultimately the future of our children. We are overwhelmed with controversial issues that lend itself to the divide the country is experiencing at an unprecedented level. Um, we're going to speak to some of those things today briefly, but we do have a very unique guest, and by that I mean um, rare. He is uh, formerly chief of detectives of the New York City Police Department, Robert Boyce. Um, in fact, you'll, you'll find it interesting. He's currently the executive producer of a show which is viewable on Oxygen Network or even YouTube. It's called New York Homicide, and what's unique about this show is that we're not having actors. We're actually having the New York City detectives who have been assigned to some of these, I would say, rather difficult, problematic, and sensitive cases. You're going to see them and listen to them, the men and the women that are in the streets solving these cases. They do it under the direction and tutelage of men like Chief Boyce and his command staff. Um, the cases date back sometimes to the 80s. Uh, you'll find them interesting. Uh, so, you know, we're going to have the chief on in a few minutes. Just bear with us. I do want to mention Phantom Rescue. Phantom Rescue is an organization that is headed up by a gentleman, Frank Smith. And one of the individuals who is involved in coordinating its efforts is a gentleman by the name of Tony Sparks. Tony, I believe, was at the inception of this organization. And this organization targets sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. And what I always say this every week, you'll find interesting that this is a problem that they allude to taking place at the border. It's far more widespread than the border. It's something that's resonating throughout the country. In fact, we're finding out that it's even prevalent on the indigenous lands, the lands that are owned by the indigenous people that the government so cordially gave to them, I guess as part of settlement or reparation for ethnically cleansing them. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. But uh, what you'll find interesting also is there's very little collaborative effort between the federal government and the leaders of the indigenous lands to address these problems. This is a topic that should have a task force assigned to it. In fact, I'll tell you honestly, I know that Chief Boyce is retired, but I'm sure he'd love to bite into that apple. I want to briefly mention something that I witnessed in the news yesterday. Um, it was a, a, an elected official from New York... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was present in San Antonio, Texas, campaigning for an individual running for a congressional seat. What I found interesting is that she was, I guess, to use an expression in kind context, hell-bent on selling to her constituents or their constituents in Texas the fact that it wasn't if, it was a when for Texas to become a democratic state. And as you guys have heard me say numerous times, I do not like the contentious atmosphere that exists when we speak about politics. There seems to be a lack of uh, civility, decency, respect for one another. 
But I do like to speak to the truthful mechanism attached to the political scene. And there are deficiencies on both sides of the aisle. But with all that being said, to listen to Ms. Cortez elude that Texas, which has been traditionally a red state for quite some time, becoming a blue state, I only want to say this to the residents of Texas. Please take a look at your blue states and your blue cities, starting with including but not being limited to New York and California, the state and the city, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, Detroit, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, um, Atlanta, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, just to mention a few, and that's what we want you to turn into. There is a problem in the Democratic Party. As I say to you repeatedly, we need a healthy Democratic Party. They're part of the balancing system in government, kind of like the three branches of government, the executive, judicial and executive, uh, uh, legislative, excuse me. Um, We need a healthy Democratic Party. I think it is not just my opinion and truth-based. It's the opinion of even those in the Democratic Party that there's 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 problems in paradise there. Uh, There's a divide. There's a lot of dissension. I would sense that the younger generation are more progressive thinking, although I would really have to explore what the word progressive means when you explore their thinking, um, is in disconnect with with an an older, more conservative uh, generation of Democratic leadership, such as um, Joe Manchin and um, the young lady from Arizona. Ah, God, this is not a good time for me to have a memory lapse. But in any case, um, she's a young lady that was followed into the bathroom. It doesn't, doesn't matter. There is a presence in the Democratic Party that still remains somewhat conservative. The important element about being conservative in our approach to problem solving is it opens your mind to the views of the opposition. There is merit in everyone's argument. You must listen to it. We must listen and engage them with civility and decency and respect. And hopefully, Kristen Cinema, by the way, is the young lady's name. Um, hopefully, we will come to some form of compromise, which was consistent in the operation of the government at one time. It seems to have left the discussion. But the simple notion that states should turn blue, I would say most people are alarmed by hearing that because... The common denominator, unfortunately, in every major city and state that's being mismanaged, both from a criminal component and even financially, is their blue states. We need to try to get back on track with the Democratic Party and leadership. So um, I do want to thank our sponsors before we move on today, Instacart and Buzzsprout. I use them both. The show is based and built off Buzzsprout. We're going to speak to it a little later about special offers we set aside for you. I did mention Tony Smith and, uh, and uh, excuse me, Frank Smith and Tony Sparks, two important gentlemen. So uh, without um, much more discussion by me, I want to introduce to you um, someone who I feel we are privileged to have with us today, uh, recently retired Chief of Detectives Robert Boyce. So, Chief, I, you know, I, I do want to spend some time today in a discussion about New York Homicide, your show that's being aired on Oxygen. Uh, as I mentioned in this lead-in, the interesting thing about this is that we're actually talking to New York City detectives who've worked these cases. Um, but I do want to just kind of digress for one second and talk very briefly about what is going on in New York, with, in New York City with, with, this, with this crime. 
Lou, so uh, the, the numbers came out from last week, and thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. And glad to be here uh, with your audience. Uh, so it keeps getting worse here. Last, uh, this morning, they released last week's crime numbers, and the city was up 71% in major crime. I'll tell you, I, um, <laughs> I, I was on the job for 35 years. I saw the comeback of New York City. I saw how, how well we were doing. I left in, um, in the spring of 2018. I worked to my last day. I really enjoyed my, uh, my job and, uh, and my career, and I really love New York City. As you well know, we've spoken about this many times, but we're seeing numbers that we haven't seen um, in, 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 in 20 years, in decades. All the work that we put in is, is, seems to be going awry, um, and that's, that's a lot. Shooting victims up, look, shooting victims up 150% um, this past week. We can't have that. Uh, we see just madness going around 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 our city, and uh, incidents up 100 percent. A terrible homicide over the weekend. Just just gut wrenching. Uh, a young woman, Christina Young Lee, 35 year old woman, murdered in her home, followed in off the street by a maniac, stabbed 40 times, and sexually assaulted. Uh, this is the type of thing that should be turning around right here. Should be turning us around when we see something like this. And the, the, you're looking for some point in time to say that's it. That's it. This is enough. But we haven't seen that. The mayor went yesterday to Albany to argue for uh, changes in the bail law. He's looking to get uh, the stop that if you're a dangerous community, we, we can put you in, uh, remand you into custody when you're arrested. So, and he fell on death ears. It doesn't look like it's going anywhere. So I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. I think this is going to continually get worse and worse until finally the people step up and start electing these, these uh, state assembly and senators out of office until this gets turned around. We see it, we see it coming, but right now, how many people are going to get hurt? How many people are going to get shot? And uh, how many people are gonna get killed before that happens? So it's bad times in New York and across the country in urban, in urban areas, as you well know. I wanna just ask you this question and then we're gonna go right into a little bit about New York homicide. Um, these, this is a really interesting gun problem. So I, I'd like you to break down for us, Chief, and then we're gonna move on after this. Uh, response from you. Um, if I understood you correctly in prior conversation, there are two mechanisms that are driving the, the gun-related incidents. One are gangs, and the other is drug-related activity. So just speak to the differences, which one is more difficult to mitigate, infiltrate. You know, give us some insight as to how problematic um, addressing this gun issue in New York City, which ultimately translates to other major cities is? So gangs are the driver right now in shootings in New York. The main motive is gang-related and has been for quite some time. Uh, narcotics to a lesser extent. We're not into the old-time uh, crack wars we were back in the 90s. That has turned around. Nonetheless, that is driven by greed, by money, and also driven by the desperation when, with addicts who are committing small crimes in order to feed their habit. Let's get back to the gangs. Um, they're the ones who are shooting each other, um, you know, across the city in all boroughs. And it's a threat to anybody who lives in those outer boroughs and, and, and upper Manhattan as well. So the reason we did so well in 2018 and 2017, we were below uh, 200 murders. Uh, I'm sorry, 300 murders. We had 288, still 288 too many. But nonetheless, was the lowest number. Uh, in any in, since the 1940s in the in New York Boss, weren't, weren't you in charge of the gang unit? I was. Ah. And uh, gang unit, what we saw was major uh, national international gangs coming to New York, Bloods, Crips, Latin Kings from other cities, infiltrating, come to Rikers Island, 
up that way and into and out in the street. Then we saw a change into what we call pocket crews, smaller gangs fighting within uh, housing, housing developments, one development against another, one area against the other. We saw that, which we have today. So this is what we see. And the best thing about these gangs, things, as far as law enforcement, they like to promote themselves, represent, as, as we say, on social media. So we know who they are. We know what they're doing. We know who they're fighting with. We just have to get our hands around it now. What we were doing in 2018 and 2017, go back to that. Why is so it so difficult, Chief? Why is it so difficult to infiltrate infiltrate these these gangs? What's what's the difference with those, for example, as to oppose what we do with um, narcotics, which you and I are both familiar with? What's the difference? So let's take a look at this. I mean, you're selling drugs on a corner. We do, we do a sustained um, presence there on that corner. We make your arrests. We lo- lo- locate and, and, and prosecute, arrest and prosecute those individuals selling drugs. And then we go back to that corner, to that location, make sure it doesn't spread up again. Now customers know not to go there. That's how you, that's how you do that. And we get a lot of cooperators too. Every, every, they're easy to flip. They don't want to go to jail. Nobody wants to go to jail. Problem with gangs is, is somewhat, uh, is, is really dissimilar. These are kids that their whole life, all that means to them is that being in that gang. So they're committed without a monetary um, excuse to be so. It's their life. It's a little bit harder to do, but we can still do it. So when Bill Braden became mayor, and I'm sorry, police commissioner, should have been mayor. Should have been mayor, no no question. Um, When he came back in 2014, we started opening task forces to go after the gangs. With those, I think we did 115 takedowns. Now, you don't want to go after every little person in a gang. You want to take out the top tier of that gang and arrest them and then prosecute them. And then when you do it federally, you take that gang leadership and you move it out west. So now they're severed from the New York area. They can't control their gangs from uh, from jail cells, which is what they do in state law. And, they, and you have better conspiracy um, statutes as well. So they're staying out there long enough, uh, long enough that they won't come back and wreak havoc in New York City. So it was a game changer. Did all these things and got it done. So they're back, the gangs. We see it time and time again. And uh, it's like I said, we can we can get cooperators. We can, we can go and, and get CIs, confidential informants. That's how that's done. Uh, but you have to go out and do it. And they have to be prosecuted by DAs who want to listen to us. And that might be the issue now. Chiefs, tell us um, how young are gang members these days? 10 years old, 11 years old. And, and you put yourself in there. You grew up in Bed-Stuy. I know you did. Uh, and, and so you look at when, when you, you really have nothing and all of a sudden you see who you're admiring at that point, a gang member. They're the ones with the fleshy clothes. They're the ones getting respect. So you see that and you want to be a part of that. And that's the issue there too. However, little, when we arrest them, when they get a little bit older, they start carrying guns, start shooting people. They start doing robberies and, and things that abet the gang. You can't put them back in that environment once you arrest them, waiting for trial. They're just going to get to it over and over and over again. So we have to come up with a better solution for this to get them out of that gang, get them out of that area, and move them on to different parts of their life as quickly as we can. You know, We're not doing that. You know, one of the things I, that I've always uh, given some thought to, and I think other individuals have spoken to this as well, you know, when we, when we remand them to a facility that we start to have a conversation with them about furthering their education, while they're in these facilities, in lieu of perhaps reduction in sentence. that The purpose of that would be really simple. The more education they have, for example, if we can get someone to um, acquire a bachelor's degree or even an associate degree, when they leave the, the prison environment or the jail environment, 
it becomes that much more easy for them to assimilate into the culture without reverting back into the criminal activity, which we call recidivism. Um, I'm sure you share that view as well. The question is, how do we make that occur? And I do want to ask you about privatized prisons. Isn't this a business? And the more prisoners we have in prison, the more the owners of the prisons make. Isn't that part of the problem here? Yeah, well, you know, it, it seemed like a good idea at first to have pro, uh, private privatization of, of prison systems because you wouldn't be paying pensions. That 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 company would be doing that. Uh, but it, it has its failures. It has its pluses and it has its failures. Mostly, it's the rehab. You know, not only college degrees. Give give, give someone a trade. Teach them how to, to has to be a carpenter. Things of that nature. Get them into unions if you can. Accelerate their careers when they come out. There's a lot of things you have to do, but you have to think out of the box for this. You know, you have to give someone an alternative not to get back into that life. Not if they're doing drugs, not to get back into that drug life or alcohol, whatever the case may be. But that needs to be done. You want to call it a boot camp, whatever you want to call it. It's got, you know, at one time, as you well know, um, when you ran into trouble, the way to get out of it was going to the United States Service, <laughs> Army, Navy, and Marines. That's how a lot of people got out of that. So I don't think that's happening more, especially now with gang members. They might, may not want them. I don't know. But uh, it used to save lives and save careers. And, and, and maybe we should think in those terms. Uh, on the other end of this thing, not just incarcerate, but completely rehabilitate. The gang is the problem, is the culture, and is supported by 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 media, by 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 te- television and and, uh, and records. And you see it time and time again. The lyrics are just out of bounds. It's about killing cops and, and degrading women. All that should someone should be talking about these things, but they're not. And so it should be certainly should be on the Super Bowl at halftime. That's for sure. You know, so Chief, if I, if I can just interrupt you, and I apologize, you know, what I what I oftentimes feel is that the entertainment industry somewhat glorifies the activities of organized crime. I think you'll agree with that with shows like The Sopranos as if there's something redeeming to this lifestyle. And they're doing the same thing with gangs. You know, they, they seem that if they promote them uh, properly, that I, I guess it makes them more palatable or more acceptable or we understand them better. Chief, we're going to take a quick break. We have with us today Chief Robert Boyce, recently retired Chief of Detectives. When we come back, we're going to speak about the show New York Homicide, of which he is the executive producer, and you can see it on Oxygen. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. Stick with us. Have you ever thought about doing your own podcast and found the process confusing and overwhelming? Well, let Studio Podcast Suites of Jacksonville make it easy for you. They have everything you need to record, produce, and distribute a professional-sounding podcast. Studio Podcast Suites is Jacksonville's only five-star rated professional podcast studio rental and podcast service company. Studio Podcast Suites provides two clean and comfortable state-of-the-art recording suites for both audio and video podcast recording. They offer a complete menu of podcast services, including editing, podcast art, hosting, video, consulting, and more. Studio Podcast Suites. Jacksonville's premier professional podcast studio recording and podcast service company. Book your studio today at studiopodcastsuites.com. That's studiopodcastsuites, S-U-I-T-E-S dot com. Studio Podcast Suites. We're back, ladies and gentlemen. We have with us today the the honor of having... uh, Chief Robert Boyce, recently retired Chief of Detectives in New York City. He's the executive producer, as I mentioned earlier, of a show called New York Homicide, which is incredibly interesting. These are the actual cases that New York City detectives have been assigned to solve. 
what you're going to really find interesting is they're not actors. These are the detectives. These are the actual detectives in each of the commands and each of the boroughs under the tutelage of his command staff during his tenure that solved some crimes. Chief, I want to give the floor to you. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with this show. Thanks, Lou. It's easy to talk about something that you put a lot of time in and a lot of effort in. And I think that the genesis of this show was to show New York City police detectives, members of law enforcement, just what law enforcement can do for the public and their commitment to it. So this came to me when a time when everybody was, was, was giving the police a hard time. And, uh, and we, were, we didn't have any friends anywhere. So I wanted to turn it around. So we did 12, uh, 12 episodes in this, in this uh, program, New York Homicide, and it's cases from around the city. And I especially wanted to show some of the cases happened in the 1980s, before all the technology boomed. How did those detectives solve those crimes? And you'll see some of those. Murder at the Met, murder in Soho. You'll see these things that happened at a different time in New York. And now, nowadays, too, where you saw uh, a communality homicide, the Ellen B. Simone Gardens murder, that's coming up as well. You'll see exactly, you'll see detectives and how, how committed they are to their city, but also and empathetic to the family and how close they work with the family in solving these crimes. We need the family to tell us a couple things. We need them to tell us what's going on in the victim's life. And we want their support because that's what drives us to keep, go forward. So you're going to see some really good detectives. And I'll tell you, you're going to see some New York accents you haven't heard in a while, though. Uh, that's for sure. We're going back to Brooklyn and the Bronx where you see hardcore uh, veteran police officers. Homicide. That's detectives. why I call you every day, Chief. <laughs> the best of the best. The best, of the best. You want to hear our accents? You want to see how we, how we think and how we how we process information and how we how we make how we uh, look at evidence and seek evidence and then find it and turn it around and, and get a prosecution going. Watch the show. I think you'll like it. Uh, everybody who's seen it, I haven't gotten a negative review yet. They enjoy it very much. We're uh, seven in. We got five to go for this season. We're trying to get next season's line, lined up as well. But I think you're going to see some things, and, and, and I do the narration. But it's the detectives who make the uh, who make the, uh, the the show go, and that's what's important. Chief, I want to ask you about a case you may not have uh, produced. Um, the Vetrano case is that the one with the young girl was the jogger. Karina Vetrano, yes, it was in Howard Beach, Queens, 2016, yeah. August 2nd of 2016. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that case, Chief. Karina Vetrano was a beautiful young woman and um, and full of life. Uh, you know. She was a uh, speech uh, um, specialist in speech therapy, and she went out for a daily jog. She was with her dad. Her dad was a, a, a New York City Fire Department, a member of, of the Fire Department, and then became a roofer after, after that career. And these are great, great New Yorkers in Howard Beach. So she went out by herself that day for a run and was brutally uh, sexually assaulted and murdered inside a park near our house. And we had nothing to go in the case, with the exception, basically, because there, no, there was no video in the park. So we, so we worked very hard on it, and the detectives really labored uh, for six months. But what Karina did do, she fought for her life. She fought like a lioness, and she was able to scratch her her, um, her, uh, her 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 attacker. And we got DNA under her fingernails. We got DNA from the back of her uh, neck and off her phone. We put together a DNA profile, and we had it, but it wasn't in any of our databases. So it was up to us to go find this person, and we did. Six months to the day, to the day. Um, we made we, we made the identification of Chanel Lewis, the perpetrator of this, and we arrested him. And he admitted to all of it. A very uh, very sick young man, very twisted, um, and and he admitted to everything on on video. And he told us things about the case that we that only we knew. We didn't put out in the public. So he was he was uh, prosecuted. He was convicted, and now he's sitting up in prison. 
But what really it was the deal is that people go out every day when I go about their lives, go run young women uh, across across the country. And this was a threat to that. She was not safe in her own neighborhood. So um, it, it's not a telltale sign on my uh, on my career because how hard we la- we labored on it. And I'll tell you, the press didn't think we we're going to solve it. They never did. And they would tell me you're not going to solve this. It's too it's too hard. Guess what? We did. And That's- I was very proud of that effort. That's because they have some of the best investigators in the world in the New York City Police Department based on what they're exposed to. I want to ask you this, Chief, and then we're going to go back to the show. Is uh, is New York City safe? Not right now. You know, to be perfectly honest, I wish I could tell you that. I know how hard the men and women of the NYPD are working, but they're working in, in, in vain in some, in, in some uh, circumstance because the perpetrator is going right back out in the street. So, you know, you're up... Um, in, in subway crime, subways are a real problem. That was one. Bill Braden always said, "This moves the city. It's it's, it's a number one priority. You've got to make them safe. They're not safe anymore." You know, so so subway crime is a, is a big problem. It's the numbers are going up. Um, they're up thirty percent. They're up sixty five percent for the year to date. And, uh, and remember, ridership is low. Ridership is low now because of COVID. Not everybody's back to work. So why is this happening? Why is Michelle Michelle Go pushed to her death on the subway? Uh, another young woman was dragged by a perpetrator who was out on three crimes in November. He, he was out. He should have been out. He should have been in. So why are these people dying? Why is, uh, why is Christina Young Lee being filed into her house and murdered and stabbed 40 times? This is a dangerous time in New York. And the mayor, from what I understand, he went to Albany yesterday, fell on deaf ears. This is not a police problem. This is a political problem. And, it's, and, and the people of New York are paying the price for it. You know what's interesting, boss, is that if you were to poll the citizens or the residents of the city of New York, they would probably tell you that it's the police. And what they don't understand is that, is that the police are only as effective as the political environment will allow them to be. Um, whether you're a fan of Rudy Giuliani's or not, um, what he did do was he picked who I happen to believe is the most progressive and, and the best police administrator in the business, Bill Bratton. He licensed him, and he allowed him to go in and implement a lot of uh, policies. You and I are familiar with zero tolerance, quality of life, broken windows. And stop and frisk was part of that discussion. And there's a discussion about um, at one point maybe the crime statistic didn't support the tactic any longer. You know, we could debate it back and forth. The most important thing is to learn from our mistakes and to move forward, which we haven't done. We learn from the mistakes, and then we abandon policing. But there's another issue that's nagging us, Chief. Uh, how do we re-incentivize these young police officers to go out there and potentially engage a criminal element at times using force, deadly physical force perhaps, and then stand up or try to stand up to the scrutiny of the media and a very small percentage of the minority community that would like to take their pensions and potentially incarcerate them? I mean... This is getting to the point where, and I don't think the, and I'm not shy about saying this, the cops have stopped working. There's no reason for them to respond in any type of expeditious fashion. I think the expression we use is sometimes it's self-remedies. You know, we've got to protect these police officers. And unfortunately, my opinion is that they are pigeonholed by technology. You know, what's, what's your view on that? Well, I would disagree with you in a couple of things you just said, though. I think the NYPD is still making the arrests that they need to make. However, they're not being prosecuted. So gun arrests were over uh, were up substantially last year. Uh, how were they prosecuted? That's what you have to look at. It's really easy to figure out. These are, these are statistics that then uh, analytics that you can look at and say, what happened here? They weren't fully prosecuted. Someone gets arrested for a gun. 
you can't let back out on the on diversionary sentencing, diversionary sentencing, excuse me. They have to be uh, uh, incarcerated because they're going to go back and get another gun, which they do. So this, this lie that we're being told by politicians, and I'll say this as well, it's not the people of the city of New York. They support us. It's the politicians who are against us in New York. And that's the way I look at it, against good policing anyway. We really had given them a very safe city. And now it's just turned just the other way around. And a lot of it has to do with the city council uh, and the changes they've made. So that's we have a mayor now who's a former police officer. Um, he's doing a lot of talking, as he should. Uh, let, let's see if he can get this turned around. He wasn't already as a state senator. It's, and we have, have an election year coming up for, for our governor. So let's see if we can get this thing turned around. I think we can. I'm more optimistic than you are. We've had these discussions as well. Uh, and I've seen what the NYPD can do when it puts its head, mind to it. You know? So we'll see how that goes. But I'll tell you what, um, I've said a long time, for a long time, it's a very small amount of New Yorkers committing the crimes here. But unless you do something about it, you have to go, uh, it's going to continue. It's as small as package steps. Um, so when you arrest someone, we uh, they arrested someone in the area where I live here in Brooklyn the other day, um, and she had stolen numerous packages. She had a little routine going down, and she was turned around and looked right back out. It's a misdemeanor. It didn't qualify as a felony. And it's in the bail reform law. She has to be let back out again. So she's doing it again. Why? There's no, there's no, there's no, nothing to stop her from going time and time and time again. So these things have to change. If they don't, we're going to have a slip back. And you remember the 80s in New York before the change came, the turnaround um, and what happened there. And Bill Bradley was only, unfortunately, was, was, was commissioner for a short time the first time. Um, and that was probably part of the issue. Uh, we continue the policies. Of, of turnaround and CompSat and those things, of which I did, I did 22 years of CompSat you know, in my in my time, from a sergeant to uh, the chief of detectives when I left. So I saw the effect it had and how everything mattered. And I think the people of the of the city of New York care for its police department. I think it's the political policies of its current politicians. I'm not going to call them elected officials. I'm going to call them politicians because that's what they are. They're looking to stay in office and, and, and go about their things. You mentioned someone earlier and how they speak. Um, and I think it's evident as we go as, as we go into the 2022, seven police officers shot in the first couple of weeks of, of uh, 2022, seven low. And um, those are things we haven't seen in, since the early 70s with the, in the BLA days. So there's big problems here. Well, you're right. We are going to disagree on this a little bit because I'm skeptical. I, I do realize that taking record numbers of guns off the street in New York City, sometimes it's almost difficult to avoid. Even Nassau County, I have a friend who was a higher up in Nassau County. As a result of the increase in gun activity in New York City, it's trickling into what they call crossover crimes into Nassau County, which is contiguous to the city. Um, I don't mean to be skeptical, but I just think in general – the support for the police, although you believe the public is there for them. I think, and I'm going to say this, um, I want to say this as diplomatically as possible. I don't think the the minority community is convinced that the police are really there for them. You know, I think that they've listened to some of the rhetoric and I think they've become consumed in cases like Michael Brown and George Floyd and Eric Garner. And it feeds this narrative that wants them to believe that the police are brutal. You know, if you look at each of these cases, and I want to separate the one with uh, George Floyd because of the optic attached by that tactic that Chauvin employed. I don't know if he didn't get the memo or if he doesn't understand what optics are about. But um, I, I think the rhetoric is all wrong. 
And I want to say this for a second. I want to take a break, and I want to come right back, and I want to continue this conversation with Chief Boyce. We'll be right back, guys. If you're looking for peace of mind, look no further than Global Elite for your safety. Global Elite Security Force is made up of active and former law enforcement agents. Their force has worked at the federal, state, and local level. They are dedicated to providing the most professional personal security and investigative services available in the private sector. With offices nationwide and globally, this footprint gives Global Elite the ability to coordinate protection and security anywhere in the world. Think of Global Elite Protection Services for special events, dignitaries, high-profile net worth individuals, and the entertainment industry security services. Offering drones, weapons detection, shot sporting, chem biodetection, executive protection surveillance, dignitary protection, threat assessment, private investigation, and cyber security. They are the experts in intelligence and private protection services. Go to globalelite.us.com. That's globalelite.us.com to engage Global Elite. We're back, ladies and gentlemen. We have Chief Robert Boyce with us. This gentleman was a recently retired chief of detectives in New York City. My opinion is he may have been the most preeminent chief we've had in that role it's it is the crown jewel of the new york city police department he was in charge of seven thousand new york city detectives to put that in context for you with the exception of chicago and los angeles there are no other police departments that have that larger man force no less detectives so you can imagine he had his hands full um i know he's got a great had a great command staff and he was an exceptional supervisor chief i want to ask you this question how did you guys end up on the oxygen network? And if that's too sensitive, you can sidestep me to the next question. No, it's not sensitive at all. Okay. Uh, me and, um, and people like true crime. People like to see real occurrences and not, and not, not something scripted for the most part. And there's plenty of scripted shows out there that are very good. But they want to see true crime. And oxygen has that. So I was approached by, uh, by the creators of it, uh, the Warsaw Sisters, excuse me. They came up to me and said, we have, this, we have this program. They went through Bill Bratton, actually. And he referred them to me and we started kicking around and I told him what I wanted to do. If I do this, what I wanted to do, I would show detectives and how hard they work because you lose your life for a week on a case like that. That's it. Everything's on your family's on standby, everything you're at work and you work in this case from, from that time. I've done it many, many, many times. I've been in the detective bureau quite a bit in my career back and forth. So we wanted to go in there and show this. We wanted to show the people in a good light. Um, and some of the cases there you'll see, uh, how hard it was and the empathy you'll have for the victims, what is all about the victims' families. So two that, sits, uh, that sticks out is the Joey Caminelli homicide that happened in, uh, in, in Manhattan. A man brutally murdered, and then they took his body to New Jersey, and they burnt it and, 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 and um, buried it in a shallow grave. Detectives were able to piece this out, get information with help from Joey's friends and, and, and his father. His father's a great man, um, Patsy Caminelli and put this thing together and get this thing prosecuted. Now they're both in jail. So that was, it was, and I lived through it. And I remember going back and forth with prosecutors and things like that, and search warrants and going forward in a media case. And the second one was something um, in Brooklyn, LNB Simone Gardens, as hasn't shown yet. But it was important to me because um, uh, Louis Barbati was the victim of brutal homicide. Just, uh, and he was part of a great family. In, in New York, they had LMB Simone Gardens Pizza. It's world famous, certainly uh, citywide famous, the best pizza in the city. Uh, arguably, because I know some other pizza owners who, who give me a hard time about that, but it was really good. He was, one day he was going home, he was brutally murdered, trying to be robbed. 
And I remember every the, the aftermath thereof, and everybody called him a mobster, and uh, it was all mob related. And uh, and meanwhile, we knew what we had. We knew we had a robbery the whole time. And I was uh, go homeless on the radio to uh, to people speaking about New York City, and basically calling the voices on what he was talking about. Um, this is what happened. It was mob. It was uh, it was little Casey's against the Columbos. All these all these uh, these theories they had. And all the time we knew who our person was. We, you know, we were lining up our evidence, putting our ducks together, going forward, getting all we needed to arrest them, calling in the FBI to help us out. Because we always need a federal help in, in some of these big cases, which we had, and they're great partners with us. And then we made the arrest. And, um, and so it was very gratifying for me. And I know how hard the detectives worked on it. And I, I know what his loss meant to the, to the parts of Brooklyn that he lived in. So these were big events, and they're all very important, by the way. I'm not just saying these these things resonated with me quite a bit because I was so involved in each one of the cases every day. So those are some of the cases we had. You're going to see some murder at the Met. Um, you know, Detective Mike Struck and Jerry Giorgio, how they with very little uh, evidence, uh, I'm sorry, not evidence, but uh, technology solved a heinous crime. Um, you know, and so I got to know Mike Struck, both on the phones. And this guy's from, this guy handled the John, worked on the John Lennon murder. Uh, so you see these uh, really famous cases over the decades in New York. It makes you proud to be a New Yorker and certainly proud to be an NYPD. Yeah, New York City Police Department is really an anomaly. Um, they they say that the police department's larger than most countries' armies, <laughs> interestingly enough. <laughs> and I know that you guys collaborate quite a bit with the FBI. You guys have a very good working relationship with them. And I do believe that the FBI probably has the best laboratories. Is that Fair statement to make. Excellent. They're great data crunchers as well, too, which we need. As well. You know, when you start looking for a deal in the haystack, you need you need the ex- expertise and the abilities to go forward. Yes, you do. Good point. Yeah, and um, I know that the city in general collaborates quite well with the federal agencies, and I think that's greatly due to the fact that there is a lot of dependency upon the New York City Police Department by these federal agencies to accomplish their missions, whether it's the DEA, who formed what we call the Drug Enforcement Task Force (DETF) or the Secret Service when they have visits of the president or a, a rather sensitive head of state, or even the FBI. We have Joint Terrorism Task Force. Um, th- how much involvement did you have with JTTF, Chief, with the detectives so that were assigned there? Yeah, so uh, they, they work for someone else. They, they work for John Miller, uh, another great New Yorker, and then and Tom Galati. And so uh, so these are, uh, these are cases when there is an incident, um, because we have a lot of detectives, we can put a lot of detectives in a case within a half an hour. Uh, I, I always say we can put three, 400 detectives on a corner in, in 40 minutes. Not a problem. We can do that. So in the, I had three um, terrorist incidents when I was chief of detectives. And each time we worked, uh, you know, hand in glove with, uh, with the FBI, and they were great. Bill Sweeney was the, uh, was the uh, ADIC at the time, and we really uh, helped them solve the case. I felt we did anyway because we were really good at going out and getting video. Uh, and, and, and gave that to the feds. And so we probably saved some lives. And it was interesting because I, um, I had a conversation with John Miller. I said, we identified this uh, guy, Rahibi, who had blown, set up um, uh, bombs on, tw- on 23rd Street and 22nd Street. And I said, uh, you know, we're going to go get him. He's a criminal. I said, and he was like, no, he's a terrorist to me. And he goes, he's going to flame out, which is what he did. He got into a protracted gun battle with officers from uh, in New Jersey. They shot him, I think, at 12 times. Uh, he's alive. He's sitting in a jail cell right now where he, where he needs to be. But these cases we aided. So we're part of an international effort as well in New York City. It's, it's an international city, New York. And you have to, as chief of detectives, you have resources that the federal uh, federal partners need. 
and they have resources that we need. So it worked quite well. And we, we did a lot of that with gang work as well. Um, the FBI and um, a, a, uh, Homeland Security, Everybody, everybody's on board here, the ATF, as far as uh, stop, stopping robberies. So we have a lot of federal task forces that really helped us in, in our, in our uh, pursuit. You know, Chief, you, you mentioned John Miller, and I just want to bounce on John Miller for a second. For people that don't know who this gentleman is, I would say this guy has a brilliant mind, conservatively putting it. Um, I don't know of anyone, or I've not listened to anyone who is as well-informed with his finger on the pulse with terrorism. He's um, currently a deputy commissioner in charge of counterterrorism and collaborates quite a lot with uh, Chief Galati, who's another standout in the police department. Chief Galati is the chief of the intelligence division of the New York City Police Department. I think its, its title alone should tell you quite a bit. But John Miller, Miller is just simply brilliant. Uh, for people that aren't aware of this, he wrote a book, and I'm going to try to tell you, back in the 90s, it was The Cell. And um, I had the privilege of providing the security for um, for John during the book signings. And um, before he started the book signings, he would speak to this issue of terrorism, its roots, its history. And, you know, I've been around the block a little bit. I've had the very good fortune of rubbing elbows with a lot of interesting people, kind of like Chief Boyce. Um, it is actually spellbounding to listen to John Miller speak. I also remind everyone he's the only person that ever had an interview or an in-person meeting with um, Osama bin Laden. If you have an opportunity, look up this book. It's called The Cell. It, it's absolutely incredible. John Miller is absolutely incredible. We're fortunate to have him in the city. I hope he sticks around um, for a while. I hope Chief Galati also. Uh, I, I want to come back to you, Chief, and um, ask you, is there a common trait or characteristic to an exceptional detective, do you think? Sure, there is. Savviness. I, when I was, I had the, 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 uh, the fortune, the, fortunate enough to have uh, the CEO of Bronx Detectives and the commanding officer as well, Manhattan Detectives. And I interviewed each person personally, um, you know, and I gave them a hard, a hard interview. It's not easy. And I, what I looked for is the ability to understand their environment um, and understand technology as well. And the savviness. What do you know? Tell me about your precincts. Tell me about your best arrest. I would ask all these, you know, you know, fastball questions. So I, I thought it was, it was important. You can't look for uh, for other things. That say, and I'm not putting anything down. If you have a college degree, that's great. But where, where are you coming from before you got me? I just earn your spurs out in the street. Uh, tell me what you're seeing in your precinct. So I know that, that I'm comfortable to get you on board. And it worked out really well for me. You know, so we, we put together these great um, investigative teams. And you have to earn your spurs every day as a detective. You know, and, uh, and you have to understand the city and the environment, what's going on with gangs, what's going on with special criminals like burglars, burglaries, burglaries are through the roof now. Um, they're up 72% last week. What happened? Something's gone bad here. Chief, is that, um, let me interrupt you, and I apologize, sir. Is there a specific area that that is, that number spiking? In other words, is it in an indigent community? Is it spiking in Manhattan? You know, is it? more affluent. Where exactly is this spike taking place? Spike in burglaries is commercial burglaries. And you're going to ask why. So it's burglary three. Why is the commercial burglaries going through the roof? Well, um, when we arrest a commercial burglar, he has to be let right back on the new bail law. So we cannot incarcerate um, commercial burglary uh, suspects for any given time. We're locking them up. There, there are one uh, friend of mine, one of my favorite restaurants in New York, 
Um, he was burglarized. He sent me the picture because he had, he had inside. And we were able to identify him and arrest him within a day. Uh, he got right back out again. So we called the parole board. We found him as a parole for burglary. He had been arrested 30 times prior uh, for burglary. So if, unless you incarcerate a career criminal, they're going to keep happening. So this is the issue. So it's really coming out of the commercial burglaries. I want to you know, tell everybody who lives in New York, uh, you have a home. It's not, it's not a home burglary for the most part. It's a commercial burglary. It's still a burglary nonetheless, and it still affects that small business owner. So that's where that's coming from across the city, not just in any borough. You know, Chief, I want to ask you about this this thing called home invasion, which I think there's an increase in frequency as well. Um, I'm going to ask you to start um, into it a little bit, but we're going to have to go to a break within the next minute. So I want to just prepare you. So uh, give us a little insight on this little home invasion routine that goes on. Will do. So uh, home invasion is when someone attacks your door, kicks down your door, follows you in, uh, whatever the case may be, across you outside, forces you into your home. Um, they get into your home and they go and they sack your home, uh, looking for valuables, holding, often beating you. Um, and, uh, and, and those kind of, those kinds of things happens all over the city. So to get out in front of that, if you do that, we, uh, we developed a task force. It's called the Sparta task force. It's a shout out to them. Uh, they got, to, they got together with New York city detectives and members of the ATF. And we started, when we made the arrest of these, we started channeling them to the Eastern and Southern districts of New York. So they are federally prosecuted under the Hobbs Act, uh, which is a uh, which is an act that it, it lets us take them to the federal courts. And all of a sudden, you saw the numbers dropping, dropping dramatically. We were blocking up crews all over the uh, all over the city for these for these uh, home invasions, these break-ins with guns. And once we did that, we saw the numbers really plummet. Um, we got the federal government involved, and it was a game changer. Uh, I don't know what it is right now. What, what if it's up or down? These home invasions. Uh, just like commercial uh, robbers as well. We took them and put them into the uh, federal system. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, have a discussion with the chief about the prosecution of individuals committing crimes with guns. My understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that in preparing these court informations, as I'm familiar with this term, um, they are intentionally omitting that at times individuals are carrying out a specific type of crime with a firearm and omitting the fact that a firearm was being used. Is there any sizzle to that stake? There was, uh, but the stake has been ex- extinguished to sizzle. Uh, that was, seems, it was called out, uh, the uh, attorney for New York County, uh, district attorney put that out. Um, that he wanted to change the penal law, actually, and affect the criminal procedure law by sentencing. Uh, you can't do that. Now, of course, he wasn't shouted down by, uh, by his fellow politicians, which is what he is, a politician. Um, but he, by otherwise, the, the, the unions that represent the police department and others, the, the, uh, the commerce in New York City, uh, commercial uh, business in New York City, that whoa, what's going on here? And so he's walked that back dramatically. So basically, what, what you go in and you tell a DA, you, you made an arrest, you know what I'm talking about, and they write up an affidavit, and you attest to it, you sign to it, you swear to it. Um, but what we found was they, they were missing certain things on the, uh, on the affidavit, the part about the gun, the statements, things of that nature. And so purposely then taking that and, and, and pulling, putting them down to lesser crimes. Can't have that. Um, that's just a subversion of the law. So he's not part of the legislative uh, branch. He's part of the uh, you know, judicial branch, if you will. And he was doing that. So I think he's walked it back dramatically, except it's, and, and you saw a very brave widow, Jason Rivera's widow, chastise him in St. Pat, Patrick's Cathedral for what he's done and what he's doing. 
And so the rebound on that is that it's, it's changed somewhat from what I understand. So God bless her. She did a great job. Yeah. What, what's, uh, what's interesting about the political environment in New York City today is um, it's completely democratic. It's democratically run. There's barely a Republican or conservative footprint there. And I do want to say I believe that Eric Adams, the current mayor, is of good intention, whether or not he will um, see the fruition of his efforts is a different discussion. But the thing I find most interesting is that the pushback he's going to receive is from within the Democratic Party. And I go back to this. I don't know if they're progress. I don't you know the, the word progressive to me has a positive connotation to it. I don't see anything positive about their approach to policing. They call for defunding. They are, I guess, in the hot seat every chance they can uh, put you there uh, as a police officer to prosecute you, take your pension, etc., which is clearly going to demotivate the police. I, I just find it a bit ironic that, you know, he's having problems in a state that's run by Democrats, and he's a Democrat, and they just aren't listening to him. It's, it's interesting, and... Um, I think that's also a problem that's resonating across the country, that a lot of the cities that are in peril are democratically run. And if you were to prop up as a Democrat an agenda that was not consistent with the thinking of that city or its elected officials, other than, say, just the mayor, you're going to have a tremendous amount of resistance. And I think that's what the uphill battle is for, for um, Eric Adams. You know, what, what's your opinion on that? It is, you know, he's 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 in office uh, less less than a month and a half, or about a month and a half now, and so he's he's up against it. He's come up with this uh, blueprint for a crime reduction, and the, the hard parts with these with these plans, though, is is, is to uh, execute these plans. It's not easy because it takes a lot. You need political will. So we always said through Chicago over the years there was no political will for change, and we never had that in New York City. We had you know he's uh, Bloomberg, and he was a really good mayor for you know. And when he was here, he was, uh, you know, a taskmaster. Uh, we lost that with uh, Mayor de Blasio. He was an ideologue. So now we have to go back to a, to a, to a mayor, a politician, who's pragmatic, who understands what the problems are and do, does something about it. But he really has. He brought, the, he brought the president in two weeks ago under a lot of hoopla. Let's see what happens now. Uh, Merrick Garland, the AG, said he would prosecute gun crimes. Let's hold him to, to task on that to get that done. Let's take these criminals, put them in the federal system, and when they're convicted, uh, send them out west where they no longer can affect New York City. These are things he has to do. And bail reform is a big part of it. 49 states have, have it um, within their statute for bail. says if he's a danger to the community, you can remand him. Or he's no bail at all. He gets remanded or a high bail. We've seen that New York is the only state that doesn't have that. Why is that? And it's been like that for a while. So he's got to get that turned around. Just keep banging on the door. I want to just ask you one final question. We have a minute left, and I do want to ask you what else you want to tell us about your show before we go today. Five, five episodes left. It's on um, It's on the Oxygen Channel. You can also see it on YouTube. I think you're going to like it. It moves very quickly. Uh, I, I will tell you that. And this, it's the time span is an hour. We don't even have enough time to talk fully about the, about the case because you work days and sometimes weeks and months, as I spoke with Karina Vetrano. But watch the show. I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to see, you're going to really emphasize with, you know, with, you know, with the family, um, empathize, excuse me, with the families of these victims, they're in pain. And I think the detectives give them some measure of closure, give them some measure of peace. And that's what this is all about. 
being a cop, being an advocate uh, for, for victims advocate in New York, number one victims advocate in New York is the NYPD detective. I say it all the time. Yeah. You know, uh, we're going to have you back and I have to tell you this, um, other discussions we're going to have about policing today and especially New York city is the disparity in which they are compensated. And that comment does not uh, suggest that other agencies who are compensated by far more aren't entitled, just that the New York city police are entitled to be at least on parity with some of the contiguous environments like Nassau County and then Suffolk County uh, and if I have my numbers correct, a police officer in Nassau County makes what a lieutenant makes in New York City and about $30,000 plus over a New York City police officer. Correct in, uh, in that statement? That's a close enough number. And, and remember the, the level of work. I'm not putting down Nassau. It's a great police department, as you well know. It's, um, it's the, the environment is a, is a big change between the two. Yeah. I'll tell you, the, the last thing I want to say today is that, you know, they, they have, in my opinion, an exceptional police commissioner in New York City, a young lady by the name of Keechant Sewell. She was the chief of detectives in Nassau County. If you listen to this young lady speak, she is absolutely brilliant. She, you can just tell her brain is working and thinking about every word that comes out of her mouth before it comes out. I mean, I wish we had more people... At, with such clarity and, and thinking as this young lady has, I, she's an incredible asset to the city. I think you'll agree with that, Chief. And we're going to wrap up after I do, this. I, I do. I met her on a case, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and, and instantly impressed. The clear grasp and, and, and ready to move things forward, and, uh, and really, really uh, top shelf. Uh, that, that's that's a felony uh, theft from uh, Nassau County, by the way. Yeah. Police <laughs> department, because we, she really is the goods. Really. Yeah, she she's a rising star. Um, you know, a lot of times, and you and I understand this, we had this conversation, sometimes you have to just survive the political environment that you're in. Guys, we're going to wrap it up today. We're going to have Chief Boyce back, though, because it gets better and better. You know, his insight into policing um, the crime in our major cities. We didn't have a chance to, to touch on the borders and the fentanyl problem and the methamphetamines coming across, which he is quite knowledgeable of. You know, I, I tell everybody this. There are, I think, either 40 or 41 chiefs in the entire New York City Police Department. I believe the roll call on 9-11 was 41,000. You have to understand what a standout you are if you're a chief in this police department. And I tell you this, it's the bosses on all of these jobs that keep us wild Indians in line. I'm just telling you now. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Go to the internet. You can find us at betweenthelines.tv. Email, call in, send a pigeon with a message. We'll take any type of uh, correspondence from you. Uh, my name is Lou Palumbo. This has been Between the Lines. 